Hey everybody, welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where an undergraduate philosophy major and his former high school philosophy teacher discuss a variety of philosophical topics in an understandable way, all towards the purpose of living a good life. Coming to you from the Lyceum, it's Andrew Graziano. I'm just hanging out on the stoa cooking some dogs. I'm Derek Parsons. Welcome to episode 29, where we continue our series on Stoic thinkers, this time with the great Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius. But before that, Mr. Parsons, what are you doing cooking dogs? <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. I do enjoy grilling. I can't remember the last time I actually grilled a hot dog. I can't remember the last time I actually ate a hot dog. It has been many years. But anyway, I don't know. It's just what I figure my stoic buds would like. Uh, that's funny. Hanging out in our togas, you know. <laughs> that's funny. Anyway, I know yesterday was another few episodes ago we talked about the great, not the great stoic tradition, but the great Texas tradition of uh, homecoming. But yesterday there was a great, I guess, not really Texas tradition, but uh high school tradition of prom. How was that? Yeah, that was last night. Um, I got home at 1 a.m. And here we are. <laughs> when, I, when I was driving to prom, I was trying to account for how many proms I have actually attended over the many years oh, of geez. my great academic career. And it's somewhere between like, I think, 12 to probably 17. I'm not quite sure. Definitely 12. Anyway, uh, you know, it's okay. I do enjoy seeing my students all dressed up and everything, having a great time. So that's yeah. that's the highlight for me. Uh, and we take pictures and, and that's fun stuff. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm mostly just standing there in the lobby, <laughs> hanging out for three hours trying to stay awake. But anyway, it's funny. The important thing is that is is another a tick box checked for uh, getting closer to the end of the school year. Not that I want school to end, of course. I love teaching, <laughs> but a little break is nice. Anyhow, speaking of breaks, man, you're getting close to being done. How's things in your world? They're going great. I always say this. Actually, maybe I don't always say this, but I feel like I do. Uh, things are busy. We're the ball's picking up steam to the end of the semester. So we have about next week and the week after. So when this episode comes out, I think we will be done with classes. We'll just have been finished with classes and we will have started our exam period. I only have one. I, I have two big exams, but those are both on the last day of those classes. And then the rest is just all papers. Which one I prefer? I don't know. They're both kind of bad. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's okay. Yeah, I'm feeling that too. I don't, I don't want to complain about my life, but <laughs> I have like about 26 or so research papers that I need to grade before in about a period of about a week and a half. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question that I have. Do you would you rather would you rather write? I've always wondered this actually. Would you rather be writing like a long paper, or would you rather be grading like all of these papers? Oh, gee, that's a good question. I do enjoy writing and research from time to time on topics I enjoy, of course. <laughs> and I do, I, I do like engaging with the research papers. But I, I guess the thing that sort of drags me down is like, I, I just really don't want to read one more paper on the differences between utilitarianism <laughs> and deontology. Like, like, I do not want to read another paper on Kant and, and Bentham. 
That's funny. So, but but when like new topics come up that I've not read a research paper on from students on, uh, that's that's fun and I enjoy that. But anyway, yeah, I don't no. know the answer to that question. Probably depends on the day. I think that's a, like a very nice teacher way of answering the question. I think. Well, thanks. I try to be a nice teacher. <laughs> I think. Yeah, I think we talked about this one episode and a very long time ago. But I, I think you know, you always say how you hate grading these uh, deontology <laughs> uh, utilitarian papers, and I know for a fact that I wrote something on that topic. Uh, <laughs> you probably did. <laughs> I, de- I definitely did. I remember exactly what it was, but that's okay. I think I'll, I'll, I'll just say I was a new student uh, in in philosophy, so I'll, I'll, I'll try to use that as my bargaining chip out of it. Well, and honestly, that's why I get so many papers on those types of topics, right? Because it is a beginning philosophy class. Yeah. And and ethics is something that students are very interested in. And, you know, to to ease your to ease your mind, when I graded yours, that was the first year I had taught philosophy. Yeah. So now I have four more years <laughs> of of deontology utilitarian papers under my belt, and I've grown a bit weary of them. Uh, it was just fine year one, so so you're in the clear. I enjoyed your paper. Wow, what a time! <laughs> that was. I, I was thinking about that before we were recording. I mean, that was so, it feels like so long ago, and it kind of was, but uh, and it doesn't also feel very long ago in the same way. So, yeah, we know who talks a lot about time. Marcus Aurelius. That's right. That's a great transition. Thank you. <laughs> I'm doing my best here on this five and a half hours of sleep. <laughs> so after that wonderful transition, I guess uh, I guess we better get started on this episode. We are doing, I guess, a yearly stoic birthday, although I don't know how they'd feel about that for uh, one of Mr. Parsons and I's favorite uh, philosophers, debatedly philosophers, or I'll, I'll amend that to thinkers, one of our favorite thinkers, Marcus Aurelius. When this episode comes out, I think it will be a few days shy of Marcus Aurelius's 2001st birthday on April 26th. Happy birthday, Marcus. Happy birthday. So for those longtime listeners, you'll remember that last year about this time, we released an episode, just a brief introduction to Marcus Aurelius celebrating his 2000th birthday. I don't quite remember exactly what we did last year. Well, we probably talked about how amazing he is. <laughs> Y'all, this is this is going to be a real fanboy episode, so just get ready. Yeah, we talked about how wonderful he is. Probably did some Roman history. Probably did some of our favorite quotes. I remember us doing some, some Roman history over uh, Marcus, doing some quotes. So we'll try not to repeat that too much for those who are interested in a little bit more background. You can check out that episode from last year. And I, I definitely remember us saying at the end of that episode that we would do an episode, a longer episode in the future, delving more into ideas. So I guess that's this episode. Yeah. And and looking back on those episode notes, actually, we spent a bit of time in that episode talking about like introducing stoicism. So, mm. so, we'll, so we've already done that now. So we can definitely spend a little more time on Marcus and his, uh, his background and uh, some of his philosophy. So I guess we'll get to that. Oh, yeah. Let's just jump in. And I guess I was going to say one more introduction comment, but I guess I don't have any more. So we're really rolling this morning. <laughs> you could you could say whatever you want, man. I don't, I don't even know what I was going to say. I guess one thing that that is 
has been kind of alluded to, and we definitely talked about last episode, is that Mr. Parsons and I really like Marcus Aurelius. Not necessarily, well, we, I'm sure we'll get into this, but for, for at least myself, not necessarily as a philosopher, but just as a guy who's not really that hypocritical of a philosopher. He seems to, at least, and I think historical records indicate he embodied this philosophy of life that we've been talking about. And we can really, I think another reason he's attractive to philosophers is it's like, philosophers talk a lot about how philosophy can help you live a good life. But here's an instance of a philosopher or a a person. Uh, I need to get out of that habit for myself. But for a person schooled in philosophy, really embracing the principles and seeing the value in it. And we're seeing this really positive effect in his life. Um, So I think that's a really attractive reason to like Marcus Aurelius if you're interested in philosophy. Yeah, there are philosophers who are really critical of other philosophers if they don't embody or live out their philosophy. Uh, I I recall Nietzsche being one of those philosophers who are critical of, of other thinkers who did not really truly live out their philosophy. Yeah, Marcus Aurelius really does that. And that's one of the things that is that draws me to him. There's some legitimacy, there's some weight behind what he says, because by the, at least the accounts that we have, he very much so stuck by those. And I guess the other thing that's intriguing about all that is that if there were a person in a position like not to do that, it was him because he was emperor of Rome. He had all the power that he could possibly have. So for a second, let's, let's, let's revisit because we talked about emperors last time with Seneca and some of the early emperors such as Nero and Caligula. Uh, let's talk about where Marcus kind of falls in line with sort of Roman history and the emperors and and maybe why he's considered one of the better emperors. Yeah. So Marcus Aurelius was basically born in a time that was very peaceful in Rome. There wasn't a lot of instability. If we're going to contrast this time in Roman history from last episode uh, with Seneca, where we saw Seneca was born in this kind of unstable time in Rome, where Rome was not necessarily really for Rome, but it was a it was a kind of birth for the Roman Empire. Rome's uh, Republic had just crumbled. There was a lot of instability in the decades uh, preceding Seneca's birth. And so by the time Seneca was born and the time Seneca was growing up and living, uh, it was this kind of development of a very early Roman empire that was incorporating a lot of old traditions, but also really redefining what it meant to be Roman. And we saw that instability with the emperors that surrounded Seneca's upbringing. We saw Caligula, we certainly saw Nero, and how those emperors really imprinted themselves on Stoic philosophy and on Seneca's own writings. And that's really a stark contrast to Marcus Aurelius's upbringings. Marcus Aurelius, he was born, yeah, when was he? he was born in uh, 121 AD or CE, whichever you prefer. And this was kind of a stable time in Rome. He was born during the reign of Hadrian. Hadrian was pretty good. He was a, he was a great emperor for, um, for Rome. Uh, he's one of the third, he was the third, what are they called? Five good emperors. And so these emperors were just very, what's it called? I don't want to say good because that's just, uh, you know. Uh, in, yeah, they weren't necessarily good. I guess in like maybe a moral sense yeah. or something, but they certainly brought stability and peace to Rome. And it should be noted like to Rome, not like there were constant wars on the borders of Rome with other 
groups of people. Uh, they didn't experience so much peace. But yeah, as far as like the outrageous spending and the horrible ruling and everything, I sometimes wonder if like the five good emperors are called that just because like the previous 10 or 11 were just so awful. Yeah, you, you know, you never you never really know. Um, it's actually really interesting, but it was Machiavelli and his discourses on Livy who coined this term five good emperors. So it's not like, uh, oh, okay. it's, you know, it's not like these Romans back then were like, ah, yeah, we're in a great time of peace. There's going to be five good emperors. And then, sure. <laughs> you know, as history often does. Oh yeah. It's a label definitely applied by, by historians. Yeah. I didn't know it, was, it originated with Machiavelli though. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Machiavelli, he writes, Machiavelli was this great political scientist for people for the few people who don't, uh, maybe the first political scientist, honestly, hmm. he was looking back on Rome. That Roman tradition was very important for later Florentine and Renaissance Italians. He wrote, from this study of history, we may also learn how a good government is established. For while all the emperors who succeeded to the throne of, by birth, except Titus, were bad, all were good who succeeded by adoption, as in the case of the five, from Nerva to Marcus, Marcus Aurelius. Mm. But as soon as the empire fell once more to errors by birth, its ruin recommenced. Yeah. And, you know, that quote is just, it gives its own historical aspect by itself. Marcus Aurelius was not in line to the throne by um, birth, although I believe he was, he was Hadrian's nephew. And Hadrian so he was born, yeah, he was born in the time of Hadrian's reign. I think I said that. If anybody actually looks at Hadrian's, one of Hadrian's sculptures, it's very interesting because he's depicted with a beard. And all of the uh, previous emperors are not depicted with a beard. They're, they're uh, very clean, clean shaven in this Augustinian manner. They kind of possess kind of a similar aspect to how Augustus was depicted. But Hadrian has this uh, beard in these later uh, depictions of emperors will share that and that's kind of giving them this uh, thinking aspect to them showing them that they're they're these uh, thinkers going back to the greek tradition but i guess that's not really important my point in saying that was these emperors who preceded these two emperors who preceded marcus aurelius had this kind of reputation of being thinkers and, and somewhat philosophers but marcus aurelius is definitely the most prominent of those yeah, so again, going back to one of the reasons we think Marcus Aurelius is, is so great, and most of that comes from his book, Meditations, mm -hmm. that we'll certainly pull lots of quotes from in this episode. It is really the only thing that he wrote, and I could be wrong on this, that maybe the only thing that he wrote that survives of any type of writing. But being that he grew up in certainly wealth and privilege, and he's growing up in the royal court, and eventually becomes emperor and has all the power in the world. And, and truly, in that time period, with the exception of maybe like some of the Han emperors over in China, easily the most powerful person in the world. And so, you know, when you think of some cliched sayings such as absolute power corrupts absolutely, and that we see many examples, especially earlier emperors, that succumb to that power and that corruption. It's really outstanding that Marcus Aurelius seems so centered on being moral and being a just ruler in a stoic sense. He's not perfect. He acknowledges this in his meditations. And that may be another thing that really sort of is attractive about him is he calls out his flaws. But I think that's another thing, aside from how he writes and what he writes about, that is so attractive about Marcus Aurelius 
and how and why so many people today still read his books with great admiration. I think I think like like Mr. Parsons said, a thing to remember about Marcus Aurelius as opposed to Epictetus, who we'll see next episode. He was born into a rather uh, well-off place, um, although it wasn't necessarily like a, his father died when he was a kid, as we know. So not necessarily nice on that end. He was raised by his grandfather. His mother was kind of absent, but he was raised by he was raised pretty well, um, at least in the Stoic way of thinking about it. His grandfather raised him uh, to be very to not be someone like uh, Nero, to not be someone who's just lusting over. I guess lusting is not the correct word to use. I think Nero lusted over everything. <laughs> yeah. Power, money, whatever. But yeah, uh, Marcus Aurelius was not like, he's not like Nero. And I don't want to uh, keep contrasting these two, I guess, rather against each other. But he was raised kind of rough. I was reading, I thought this was really interesting. In Meditations, it talks about this. He was raised by a philosopher and that had... Rusticus, right? Yeah, I think, I think it was Rusticus. Am I right on that? Yeah. Anyway, um, he was raised by a philosopher and it seems to have had a good, a positive impact on his life. Let me read this quote. It says, in April 132, at the behest of his teacher, Marcus took up the dress and habits of the philosopher. He studied while wearing a rough Greek cloak and would sleep on the ground until his mother convinced him to sleep on a bed. From a young age, he's purposely choosing not to fall into what's what he could he's not falling into this luxurious lifestyle around him but choosing discomfort because he acknowledges that it's better for him you know that reminds me of of one of the aspects of stoicism is is having a good mentor you know for seneca he had atollus and that was his great teacher of course he had others and then with marcus aurelius even though he had others in rusticus rusticus was his primary stoic teacher and so he had someone to emulate. And the Stoics, all of them talk about the importance of surrounding yourself with people who you would like to emulate, people who you think are worthy of moral and good behavior, or, or rather have moral and good behavior, and that you'd want to be more like them. It's kind of like the old, the second time I've used the word cliche, it's like the old cl cliched comment of like, you know, you, you basically become the five people that you hang around with the most. And the Stoics very much so believe that. And so here we have Marcus Aurelius as he's growing up, a very influential mentor and teacher in Rusticus, and certainly has a, an enormous influence on his life. And you mentioned Greek. If I recall correctly, meditations, I guess we need to talk about meditations first, but when we get to it, meditations is written in Greek instead of Latin. And the reason he wrote it in Greek is that that was really still at that time the language of philosophy. And so when he writes the book Meditations by writing in Greek, he's sort of indicating that he's dealing with philosophical ideas. Uh, you mentioned Greek earlier, and that's, that's why it popped in my head. No, I was, I was going to bring that up too. I mean, it's really interesting that he chooses to do that because that's a, definitely a choice from him. If anybody has a chance to just look at the Greek and who, who reads it. And I guess also if you just pick up the English translation, it's written very simply. It's not written like mm -hmm. uh, something from Kant or Hegel, where you have to spend your entire life understanding it, and you still won't understand it at the end. It's very simple. It's meant to be understandable. It's to the point. And that's just, I, I don't know, it's just 
it's not trying to impress anybody, which is the, I guess the language of the purpose of meditations for himself. It's his journal. I don't know. It's just, it's just a very humble thing to do and it's admirable. Of course, people can't see this, but in our show notes, we just have a bullet point that says, what's so great about Marcus Aurelius? <laughs> and so these are like some of the things we're talking about here. So for people who are unfamiliar, Meditations is the one work that we have of Marcus Aurelius. And it was like Andrew said, his journals, uh, specifically his morning journal. And it's very disjointed. There's no like cohesive structure. It's just basically his morning thoughts, the way that he focused his mind for the day. He wrote down uh, the things that were concerning him. He wrote down in this journal. And yeah, so it's, it's really written in a very accessible format that I think, again, one of the things that's attractive about Marcus Aurelius is that because of the language and because of the things that he writes about. Yeah. Do we have anything else to say about his his relevant biography? No, I think we're done with his biography. Okay. I guess. Yeah. We, could talk. we could talk more about it. I mean, he's, for, he's 40 when he takes the throne and he's 59 when he dies. So he was young. I mean, it's another one of those questions like, you know, are people who are considered great, a lot of them die early. And, you know, some people say like, oh, well, they just didn't have enough time to, to be bad or whatever. <laughs> um, I don't think that's the case with, with Marcus. He did. I think he did the best that an emperor could do. So one thing that I don't think is that popular or, or popularized in the history of Marcus Aurelius, but that does demonstrate kind of his character as a leader is during one of the beginning years of Marcus Aurelius' reign, there was a person named Avidus Cassius who tried to overthrow Marcus Aurelius from the throne. Cassius proclaimed himself emperor because he was kind of like a famous, I don't know if he was a famous general, but he was a general, he was basically a general before that. Um, and he sent out, I think he had some kind of military command in what they would refer to as the Orient and I guess that side of Roman holdings. And he was basically just trying to hold it and to proclaim himself emperor. And basically what happened was Marcus really suppressed the rebellion. He was a great, he destroyed all of his correspondence so that he wouldn't be tempted to go back and read it and get revenge from everyone who he communicated, who um, Cassius communicated with uh, and go kill them because that had happened with past emperors. He did, I think, kill Cassius apparently, and I think his son and maybe a few other people. But just this suppression of the rebellion is interesting because the way he dealt with it was very rare. He didn't take out his revenge on everyone, every little person associated with it. And I think it just shows you uh, the extent to which Marcus Aurelius, again, was very stoic in his, um, his deeds and his words. Yeah, if this were a previous emperor, and it was not uncommon for Roman generals to try to take power. That's how Julius <laughs> Caesar came to power. But there would have been wholesale slaughter of anyone who was involved with that, maybe even all the way down to the foot soldiers. And they would have been made in an example of. So the fact that Marcus Aurelius just executes for treason a number of these very closely associated people with, with Cassius, that... It, rather than you know killing all the associate generals, the entire legions that may have been, it shows um, a measure of restraint. That again, with the Roman emperors, re restraint is not usually a word we associate with them. 
Now you can debate whether or not that was wise action. Certainly there's, there's a lot of theory out there. It's like, you know, if someone, I don't know, you want to go with the whole like tree and roots example, you know, if the roots are bad, the tree's bad, if the tree's bad, the roots are bad, et cetera, et cetera. Like kill them all. Machiavelli probably would have been a proponent sure. of that idea. Uh, and his reign wasn't, you know, this is a good example. We, we say like, oh, it's the five good emperors and it's the Pax Romana. It was like basically the golden age of Rome. And there were still quite a few troubles during Marcus's reign. Uh, this one example that Andrew just brought up, but also the Antonine plague was this plague that just swept through Rome uh, during Marcus's rule. And then also the borderlands, if you will, the Roman empire at this point was really at its height in terms of size and whether it was up in Germania or over in the east or in the north, I mean, there was just constant warfare. Uh, in fact, the last 10 years of Marcus's reign, he is essentially out on campaign with the military. And to segue into a little bit more about the specifics of his book, Meditations, this is actually when he writes Meditations, these last 10 years of his life when he's out on campaign. So it wasn't like it wasn't like an easy, perfect uh, reign at all. It was filled with quite a lot of trouble, which again is why uh, Marcus's character through all of that is so impressive. So Meditations, like we said, is this book that exists of Marcus's morning journals. And he did not write it as a book. He wrote it, well, he, it was his morning journals. He wrote it for himself. There's some question as to whether or not he intended for anyone else to ever read it. You might think as an emperor, if you're writing things down, someone might preserve it. So who knows? But it is essentially while he's out on campaign, it is his morning thoughts. And you can imagine as an emperor, you have constant demands on you, constant questions, constant decision making. It's just endless. And so every morning, which this is one of those stoic practices that we talk about uh, journaling. Every morning he would get up and journal before he started his day. We, we did Seneca last week or last episode, and he would journal at the end of his day. Marcus did it at the beginning of his day. And so this book, Meditations, if you go out and purchase it, the book is a, a collection of 12 scrolls that Marcus wrote on, and most translators just call those books. So it's like 12 books of Marcus's journaling, his morning thoughts. And like I said earlier, they're not arranged in any sort of cohesive way. There's no narrative thread that runs through it. It's just each entry is really without a lot of context, just about his, uh, what he's about to face for that day and how he applies his, his stoic practice to those situations and his thoughts about it. So that's what Meditations is. We'll put this up on the website, but if you're wondering, there are lots of translations out there. We recommend the Gregory Hayes translation. There's a newer translation by Robin Waterfield that has a lot of great annotations that do explain maybe what Marcus was talking about when he writes some of those entries. You might be interested and you might not, but those are two very good translations. And I, I don't know about Andrew, my introduction to Meditations was... The Gregory Hayes version. Mine as well. That's definitely the most popular one. I was looking at, let me see, I was looking at the Amazon link to that earlier. Just for context, on the entirety of Amazon's list of, of, um, 
I mean, you can take this out. It's probably not relevant. But the, on the Amazon's ranking list of best-selling books, Gregory Hayes' translation of Meditations is 221 overall. And it's ranked second in philosophy, in philosophy books. Well, you mentioned spirituality. Uh, we should point out that the book is called Meditations. And sometimes people associate a sort of quasi-spiritual aspect to the idea of meditation or something like that. Uh, Marcus did not name this book, obviously. Whoever compiled these writings together at some point, I'm not even sure how the name originated, but it is it is called Meditations. But Meditations, as in like thinking deeply about something, there's no real spiritual overtones. Although the Stoics certainly had a conception of deity and providence and divine pro, uh, divine divinity. Yeah, so don't let the don't let the title throw you as like a type of spiritual guide. I, it's not a spiritual work at all. I would say. One of my friend's parents would not let him read uh, meditations because it was they thought it was like gonna be a Greek uh, Greek or Roman god push. It's really not at all. Yeah, it's not. It's not. A, it's not a spiritual book at all. Mm, people. That's the sound of money. Fresh printed money, 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 money. Andrew, you know we're talking a lot about Marcus Aurelius and writing. Have you ever gotten like a handwritten note or letter? Yeah, it's been a few years. Um, I think my mom actually sends me some occasionally, and I think that's very nice. I used to be pen pals with one of my friends from high school, but yeah, I guess so. I guess actually I have. Yeah, I don't get them very often at work. There's this deal where people write nice little notes and put them in your box, and those are nice, and I always keep those. I'll get cards and stuff from students, but you know, as far as like letters in the mail or anything. Occasionally, my mom, you know, will send me a, a nice little little card or something. That's always nice. I always, I always keep those. Do you, do you have a habit of keeping handwritten things? Yeah, I think I have a box or something in my room to keep all of those. Very sweet. Yeah, there's something about something about writing. You know, I mean, if you're gonna bother with writing things down, you know, I would, I would suggest that you should do it the right way with quality products such as finely bound journals rich stationery and a proper pen from the master of letters that's right seneca's quill and stationery shop that's right seneca's quill and stationery shop has all the products necessary for a satisfying and enriching writing experience mm, sure does feel like jotting down those stoic impressions how about doing so in a journal fitting the occasion need to write a letter to a young protege filled with meaningful advice don't do it on loose-leaf notebook paper. Do it on stationery that will stand the test of time. Indeed. And what's a well-written letter without using an exquisite ink pen? Yes, Seneca's pens are made from the finest organic pen-making materials, ergonomically designed for comfort so that your writing stamina won't dwindle. Elevate the art of writing. Don't settle for anything less than the best from Seneca's Quill and Stationery Shop. Thank you for sponsoring our episode today. We really appreciate it, Seneca. Oh, and thank you to our many, many listeners. You guys are absolutely wonderful. We thank you always for listening. And you can sponsor us by mentioning our podcast and your social media or anything like that. That is how you can, can pay us by paying us forward, if you will, so that more people will be exposed to open door philosophy. And by doing all those things, it helps with the algorithms yeah, so we're in so many places, right? Twitter, Instagram, on the World Wide Web. 
I guess that's right. Yeah. Yes. So anyway, thanks everyone. And now back to Marcus. All right. So for the remainder of the episode, we are going to pull some of our favorite quotes from Marcus Aurelius in his book, Meditations. Some of those you will notice are very much so an example of the Stoic tenets that we mentioned two episodes ago. And so to get us rolling, remember with Marcus's entries, they are really without context. We don't exactly know what the challenges were he was facing or what was going through his mind that day. So if these are lacking context, don't let it trouble you. Actually, the the lack of context is probably why the quotes seem so universal. So Mm. we'll start with uh, one of the Stoic tenets, which we mentioned in an earlier episode, and that's the idea of cosmopolitanism. And Stoics have a big emphasis on this, like remembering that, of course, you are important to yourself and your family and your immediate community, but that also you're a citizen of the world. And so one of the quotes Marcus has says this, man separates himself from his neighbor by his own hatred or rejection not realizing that he has thereby severed himself from the wider society of fellow citizens. And I always appreciate the, the notion of cosmopolitanism. I think uh, our human society really isn't going to get very far without the cooperation of other people. So Marcus Aurelius, ha- these themes that he talks about come up multiple times in different ways throughout the meditations. And I think the reason perhaps that he talks about cause or reminds himself through this journaling uh, that cosmopolitanism is important is because it's, I don't know that's entirely in our nature to be cosmopolitan. Like I think the immediate sort of knee jerk reaction is to be very tribal uh, and be protective of, of our small groups that we have. And so considering the larger whole, I mean, you can take today things like climate change or climate science. I mean, talk about needing to consider the whole, So I think Marcus Aurelius mentions these uh, ideas to himself, these reminders to himself that cosmopolitanism is important for the human race to continue forward, if forward is the right word to use, to continue, I guess we should say. So I think maybe that's why, maybe that's why he brings it up so frequently. It's important, I think, to remember, well, I, I actually don't know. That's, that's why I'm having a little bit of trouble with this quote, because I'm thinking, you know, I, I do think that he, uh. I don't know if he'd actually believe this uh, with every, like mm-hmm. with everyone, but I'll just, uh, since I don't have any information on the subject, I'll just assume that he does. Well, okay. So, so let's dive into that maybe for a second. It is a bit contradictory. Like he's writing these meditations while he's out on campaign, conquering mm-hmm. Germanians. And so, you know, if he's considering the whole, uh, why is he out there? cutting down the germanians just because they don't like the roman empire like is that kind of where you were getting at yep 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 yep. that's that's exactly my point and i'm not what i was thinking about you know i'm not sure like okay if i'm the emperor of rome and this is my apologetics for for marcus aurelius perhaps if i'm the emperor of rome i can have my my personal beliefs about the what the world should be like and how I should interact with human beings. But I think he's probably also balancing this uh, responsibility that he has towards his, his country, which is not very cosmopolitanist, but I think that's probably his thought process behind it. He's having to defend his, 
his country because I think by this time, I think Trajan was really the last emperor who was expanding Rome. And so I think what Marcus Aurelius was primarily doing in that Germania area was just Mm -hmm. keeping the Roman empire alive there. He was keeping it from falling. So I don't know. That's just my thoughts on the subject. This is what gets us into the messiness, right? Of of being a a moral Mm. person is that you do have a lot of conflicting duties, right? And so how do you square being cosmopolitan, which is a lovely idea. It's a very ideal idea. How do you square that with, you know, having to maintain peace or even, you know, continuing your country or empire or group of people, whatever, in a way that is uh, hopefully ethical and sustainable, but at the same time might come at the cost of someone else's freedom? Uh, Those are tough questions, man. Yeah. So maybe he says these as more so an ideal rather than what is reality. I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. That's what I'll say about that. I think this is another thing I was going to say to connect the point about reason and the point about cosmopolitanism, because I do think they're connected. Mm -hmm. Because if you're identifying that human beings have reason, and this is what makes you a human being, that recognition of someone's reasoning capacities, as long as you recognize that, you're recognizing them as a human being with the capacity to think, capacity to make decisions, the capacity to, well, I guess in this time of stoic thought, it wouldn't be stoic, become a stoic sage, but the capacity to flourish or, or whatever that would be then. And so I think like, you know, if I do go and I, I meet a German and I, uh, or I guess they're not really Germans then, but uh, a future German, and I say, oh, you know, this uh, tribal leader's pretty smart. I think he has reason. I respect him. It does just kind of breed this cosmopolitan nature. So reason is a big part of Stoic philosophy, as we've seen in the past two episodes. And it's the same thing for Marcus Aurelius. And I think he does it probably more on on an individual level than what than really what I'm talking about. There's this very interesting quote from book four, quote four. He says, uh, if thought is something we share, then so is reason, what makes us reasoning beings. If so, then the reason that tells us what to do and what not to do is also shared. If And if so, we share a common law and thus our fellow citizens and fellow citizens of something. And in that case, our state must be the world. What other entity could all human humanity belong to? And from it, from this state that we share, come thought and reason and the law. And so, you know, this is exactly what I was talking about a moment ago, this cosmopolitan nature that results from this shared reason. Yeah, Mr. Let me say one more thing about it before I kick the can over to Mr. Parsons. This is really interesting to read because this idea about reasoning is really the foundation for international law Hmm. almost, what would it be, like 1400 years later? when the Spanish priests of the School of Salamanca, who are these really interesting theologians and philosophers, are calling out Spanish and uh, Holy Roman Empire for their colonization practices in the New World, because they're saying, hey, we recognize the reason of these indigenous people, and we probably shouldn't be, you know, taking over all of their lands and such. So this thought about reason of recognizing reason in human beings as a result of their humanity 
is a practice that's pushed down, probably starting with Aristotle, following these Stoic thinkers, going with the um, the Thomists from St. Thomas Aquinas all the way up to, I don't know, probably probably now. So what, what do you think about this, Mr. Parsons? Well, I think that's fascinating and a really excellent connection to the idea of cosmopolitanism. You know, we're talking about these contradictions of perhaps that the Romans didn't view Germanians or the Germanic tribes as using human reason. And you can also look throughout the Roman Empire and see that, of course, there were many groups of of ethnic people who were subjugated by the Roman Empire. So obviously, the Roman Empire did not view every single human being as having the same degree of human reason. Otherwise, they would do what they have been taught in terms of cosmopolitanism. So I think like the lesson we take from that is that even though Rome didn't exemplify that, the idea is there. And it's a good idea. And it's a good idea because it follows the virtues. And the virtues, according to the Greeks and Romans, are in and of themselves good. So we can take that same lesson, like the Salamancan monks that you mentioned, we can take that same lesson and apply it today and and do better, right? We can do better than what Rome did. So we can use their example as a springboard to do better. If you look at the idea behind the United Nations, it's all very much so based on that. And the lesser that we recognize people's humanity and their reason, then, uh, then the lesser our world is going to be and the more there'll be warfare and things such as that. Am I kind of on the right track there? What do you think? No, I think I think that's right. My point, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Um, my point of bringing this quote in with reason, it was really for two purposes. The first was, there's a lot of quotes from Marcus Aurelius that talk about reason. Uh, he brings it up a lot. And I think this one, this one is probably one of the less uh, snippy ones, but it's, it's interesting in the same. And, I, and so I wanted to bring it up because I don't think it, it's normally talked about. And secondly, the reason is um, it really shows you how all of these stoic ideas that we're going to talk about, they really all connect with mm-hmm. each other. They are all united into one. And that's what makes stoicism and, and really any good philosophical principle or school or whatever so powerful. Yeah, the quote I have for reason, which you can show the interconnectedness of all this, has to do with time. And worrying about the past and worrying about the future, it's an emphasis on being present in the now. And certainly Marcus Aurelius had some concern about this. He was not in great health those last couple of years. In fact, book 12 of the meditations, most scholars think that he was literally dying when he was writing those, like in his last couple of months of life, and he knew it. And so the future, or the present rather, was very important to him. So he says this about time and using reason. Never let the future disturb you. You will meet it, if you have to, mm-hmm. with the same weapons of reason which today arm you against the present. You have power over your mind, not outside events. Realize this, and you will find strength. So it's that idea that uh, that mm-hmm. human re- your human reason is the thing that can ease your mind and reflect, or rather, and deflect the worries that come from emotions and urges that we get all caught up in our head about the past and the future. Mm. And like, again, if you apply that to 
cosmopolitanism, then, you know, all of a sudden we see past our cultural differences and we see the person as a reasoning human being and, and we can, can get along in that way, at least somewhat better. So in that last quote, he says, you have power over your mind, not outside events. And so here's another one of those big stoic aspects, right? That is the dichotomy of control. So here's another quote um, that deals with that. He says, don't waste the rest of your time here worrying about other people unless it affects the common good. It will keep you from doing anything useful. You'll be too preoccupied with what so-and-so is doing and why and what they're saying and what they're thinking and what they're up to and all the other things that throw you off and keep you from focusing on your own mind. So one of the things that Marcus was keenly concerned about was being remembered and having fame and having the applause of the crowd as, as he talked about, or just like people liking him. So he says here, like you can't spend all your time worrying about other people because you don't control that. So it's another example of like the dichotomy of control. That's just a, such a big part of, uh, I think, all stoicism too. But I, I always, well, maybe this is maybe this is flawed thinking because I've just read Marcus Aurelius the most out of anyone. But I just feel like it's such a big part of Marcus Aurelius. It's so evident when he talks about death, which I do think we talked a, a lot more about on our last podcast episode about Marcus Aurelius. He's just always thinking about how life is slipping away and how he can't stop that. I think he, there's there's some quotes that mention, you know, like only the gods are immortal or something mm-hmm. to that extent. And it's the nature of man to to die. And, and, you know, that's such a difficult thing to think about because it is something that we don't have control over. And that's just an example of this, you know, dichotomy of control. Um, it's ever present in, in Marcus Aurelius's mind. I mean, it's it's a helpful thing to think about, I think. Well, I don't know if it's helpful. I haven't like face death yet really but i mean i'm sure that it's much easier i don't know i have no clue i'm not even gonna speculate when he talks about death and fame and and reputation and all these these are these are all things that we can't control i think that really speaks to us today and i don't want to sound like you know the old man going off on social media but like in a day where we can all become very well known through social media and we get feedback, if you will, from things like likes and shares and retweets and all that sort of stuff. It sort of feeds our ego. And, you know, anyone can become a a temporary star, if you will, going viral. But then even now, you know, I heard of like some students the other day were talking about TikTok influencers who are now on like television shows and stuff like that. Like we all, for our reason, we, we seek that, right? And so, you know, when he talks about, and of course, well, and this is my point, uh, social media can also like totally turn around on you and all of a sudden you're vilified through it as well. And so Marcus yeah. just is like, you're not in control of any of that type of stuff. Like you can do things to try to make yourself more famous or whatever, but he's like, that. that's not even worth anything because you can't control it. It's out of your control. And he constantly talks about how people are mean and and mean-spirited and they say bad things about you and uh you know i think the opening of book two you know he just rails on this he just goes over this entire list of you know people are are 
uh, ungrateful and fickle yep. and unkind. And, you know, again, like you can try to influence that, but ultimately you don't control it. And I love this quote from book six, you know, talking about reputation. He says, then what is to be prized? An audience clapping? No, no more than the clacking of their tongues, which is all public praise amounts to a clacking of tongues. I just love that. I think of that often, you know, and like, oh, I'd love for our podcast to be bigger. Or I'd, you know, love for this tweet to get a lot of attention. I'm just like, you know, all that, it's just the clacking of tongues. Uh, what is that worth? And like, ultimately, according to Stoicism, that's not worth anything. What's what's valuable yeah. is your virtues. No, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, that's such a funny thing to think about, right? Like when you're thinking about like a like, I don't know. I'm not I'm not a big social media guy, but all alike if you're if you're on your um I don't know your uh your TikToking page, I don't know is, is our likes big on TikTok? Is that a big thing? Uh, views and likes. So like it'll tell you uh, how many views okay. your video has and then but people also can like it. Okay. So all the like is it might seem so important to you that you get like I don't know 50 likes or whatever. I don't know. I don't know what's good. <laughs> Um, or 200 likes or something. But all that is, is you just like, someone is just like pressing their thumb on a screen. And and that's that's something too that, there's another quote now that I'm thinking about it, about something like this, like uh, that Marcus Aurelius says, like whenever you think that somebody is doing X, just boil that down to to what that action is. I think he I think he's talking about like sexual um, lust or something. Oh, yeah. and, and he's like, he just says, okay, think about what this action is, actually what it is, and think about how like dumb that is. Yeah, he's just like, um, he's like uh, it's just two bodies rubbing together. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah. And I think that's just like, it's such a helpful thing to think about, you know, because uh, when you really boil down these actions that take up so much of your thoughts to like, you know, a thumb pressing down on a screen, it's just so dumb. It's just so dumb. And you allow... And th- this is not exactly dichotomy of control, but you're giving so much of your your mental energy to people pressing their thumbs down on a screen. Just hilarious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that quote that you're talking about uh, about sexual intercourse. But I don't want to get our first explicit rating for our for our podcast. But uh, <laughs> but essentially, he's like, yeah, it's just bodies rubbing together and a little secretion at the end. That's it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's a really great example. Yeah, you're right. We're just like, uh, you know, we're just dumb monkeys pushing a screen with our with our fingers. Yeah, that's kind of all. No, that's, that's right. Like the Stoics or Marcus Aurelius is like, that's all it really amounts to. Yeah, that's right. So anyway, while you're at it, everyone, please like and share our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> yeah, but uh, make sure to press your thumb on the screen. Just, just this one. This time. one time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the 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 one part of the screen that has five stars, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, all that kind of like links in with virtue, and again, it kind of like you said that they're also interconnected. Um, so, so this quote says it would be wrong for anything to stand between you and goodness. So goodness is virtue, right? As a rational being and a citizen, anything at all, the applause of the crowd, high office, wealth, self-indulgence, 
all of them might seem to be compatible with it for a while, but suddenly they control us and sweep us away. So again, like back to the, the quote earlier about things you can't control, like fame and reputation and likes on your uh, social media that, uh, you know, what it seems like that's goodness, right? Like, ah, yeah, a hundred likes or whatever, whatever's good. Mm -hmm. But he says, it seems compatible with your virtues for a while, but suddenly they control us like that want for fame, the applause of the crowd. Suddenly they control us. And before you know it, we're swept away by it and we've lost our focus Mm -hmm. on virtues. I think virtue, I don't, I I don't do not want to get carried away talking about virtue, but it's, it is something that it's just ever present in, in meditations and, and really all of, all of philosophy for, I don't know, like 1500 years, probably it's all engaged with virtue. And that's really just honestly, in in a literal account, that's what ethics is. It's, it's discussing human virtue, at least in how, how the term was originally meant to be. Yeah. And if we take the four stoic virtues, the cardinal virtues, one of those is temperance and or moderation, Mm -hmm. right? And so maybe an approach to all this is to say like, ah, do social media, like have some fun with that, like connect with people and get your ideas out there and and engage with other people's ideas through social media and things like that. But like, don't get swept away by it. So, So that's moderation, right? balance or if you want to get aristotelian about it like the golden mean right like you just don't want to get like so caught up in it that that's all you think about and you engineer your entire life around what you're going to like your next post is going to be your next video your next photo don't lose yourself Mm -hmm. in it so it's okay to engage in it right so it's that idea of moderation like balance so like we said earlier in the episode, we're both uh, very big fans of Marcus Aurelius. We could have multiple episodes just talking about his quotes that we like. I haven't even read all the ones I picked and I only pulled like seven or something. Anyway, you know, Andrew, last year we had the big like 2000th birthday of Marcus Aurelius. We're like, oh, we got to do an episode. And we both have kind of been down this stoic path the last couple of years and find some usefulness in it. So so let me ask you this. It's been a year since we've done that episode of Marcus Aurelius, and, and here we are doing another one. So has anything changed with your thoughts on Marcus Aurelius, how you approach Stoicism, uh, anything like that? Has anything changed in the last year? Well, over the past year, I've reached, uh, I've become a Stoic stage. Um, so I've really... <laughs> Congratulations. No. I mean, don't don't value my applause. Uh, but... <laughs> I, I really like this question because I like that we're we're coming back to it. I think that over the past year, I've definitely, I don't know the right word, as is often the case. I've, I've definitely been, I'm not, not as big into uh, stoicism as I was last year. And I was, and that's not saying there's anything bad. Like that's not saying that I, I've been uh, disheartened with stoicism and, and not, uh, you know, a believer in it. It's just when we recorded this episode last year, that was probably the peak of, how interested I was in stoicism or maybe I was just coming down off the peak, but I mean, I've said this before in other episodes, I got into stoicism right at the beginning of the pandemic. And so for about a year, I was, I don't want to say like just stoicism played a really important role in my life and keeping me, keeping me going throughout the pandemic and not freaking out when I was at home for, for those few months. So I, 
I spent a lot of time studying it. And so this year, uh, I've spent a lot of time with other philosophers and, and not as much time with stoicism. And so, yeah, it's not, it's, it's not you, it's me kind of thing. <laughs> what about you, Mr. Parsons? Yeah, it's similar for me, actually. Back when we recorded it a year ago, I was very intensely reading Stoics. Uh, people people remember might that. remember. remember that. Yeah, people might remember that I, I read Epictetus, Seneca, and Marcus Aurelius every morning with my morning breakfast. And I'd have about 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes to read and then do some journal reflection. So I was really carrying out that practice of journaling and being reflective. And I found it very helpful. But, you know, it's really interesting. I, I teach so much, and therefore, very similar to you, right? Therefore, you, you become exposed to so much different philosophy. You know, like, as far as my philosophy of life, if that's a phrase to use, is really kind of a mishmash of a couple of different traditions, it seems. And there's some overlap with some of those. Like, I definitely appreciate a lot that Stoicism has to offer but also appreciate some of things like uh, Taoist Zen Buddhism has to offer and pull in some Christianity and maybe from philosophical, other philosophical traditions, like a little bit of a dash of existentialism and a dash of pragmatism. And voila, you sort of have, you know, Mr. Parsons philosophy of life. So, you know, just like anything that the more you're involved with it, the more you read, the more you practice it, the, the, the stronger you're going to feel about it. And, you know, I, I read meditations three times in like a period of about a year and a half. Like I was, I was drinking deep and, yeah. uh, and I, I love it. Like Marcus yeah. really, is great, but yeah, I, you know, we're studying the Tao Te Ching and, uh, philosophy right now. And uh, yeah, I just, just got done reading a book by Alan Watts on the, the, the way of Zen. And it's like, yeah, that all makes a lot of sense too you know, but it's good. It's good stuff to think about for sure. Yeah. I remember, I know, uh, professor Sadler, uh, one of our, uh, episode guests from a few, from a few months ago, when we were talking with him, he mentioned that he was kind of an eclectic and that's, uh, that's something that I, I knew about him from just watching a, a lot of his YouTube videos. But when I was studying stoicism, I remember watching his YouTube videos in the early days of my study of Stoicism, I was watching his YouTube videos and he really likes Stoicism. He's very big into it. But I remember him talking about pretty much the same thing you just mentioned, how, how he's an eclectic, but he definitely incorporates a lot of Stoic philosophy in his life or tries to. And I couldn't understand it at the time. I, I was like, I think you need to be a proponent of one thing. Mm. But I don't think that's true now. And so I, I definitely agree with you. I think I'm on the same page as you and um, Dr. Sadler and a lot of people. But I think that stoicism is a great way to get introduced to philosophy of life. And so mm-hmm. highly recommend it. Yeah. Oh, geez, I forgot to mention transcendentalism in my list. <laughs> God bless. I love me some Emerson. Man. <laughs> I think I think I think anyone who knows you is not surprised about that one. <laughs> <laughs> Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. As the Stoic practice would recommend, we've been preparing for the end of this episode since the beginning. So that's going to be all for today. Hope you aren't too sad about that. Yeah, and now we're finally here, so not going to worry about the past. 
for what's coming up in my future, which is creating research papers. <laughs> hey, it was a lot of fun today. I really enjoyed recording this episode. So thanks for listening, guys, and you know all the usual stuff. Pass on open door philosophy to your friends. You know you can find out more about the show at our website, and you know I mentioned it earlier. Gosh, here I am talking about social media, Twitter. <laughs> we're on Twitter, oh, we're no. on Instagram. Oh, geez, go out there and like us, validate us by by touching the screen with your thumb, please. Oh gosh, we're hypocrites. We're the anti. We need you. <laughs> we are nothing without your applause. Um, I mean, feedback's nice. <laughs> So if you want to check out any of the books that we mentioned in today's episodes or see any other resources, uh, you can check those out at opendoorphilosophy.com. That's a great resource page. I was looking at it the other day and, and I was thinking, you know, when I was when I was first uh, getting into philosophy, especially Stoic philosophy, I wish that something like that would have existed. So this is not biased promotions at all. Uh, so check, give that a check out. Yeah, please do. And we want to thank our good bud, Kevin McLeod, for the free use of his music, which is so groovy. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. I uh, really appreciate it. And thank you to Marcus Aurelius for turning 2001. Thanks for staying alive all these years. Yeah, good job, buddy. <laughs> anyway, we'll see you next time. And remember, when your life is in need of some philosophy, the door is always open. Thanks. Uh, I just I just deleted my book somehow. Here, let me pull it up. By the way, I, this is probably not going in this, but um, yeah, actually it probably won't. But I, if it does somehow make it in, I gave my copy of Marcus Aurelius to a friend to read about a week ago, and he uh, is asleep as we are recording this. At least when we started at ten o'clock in the morning. So maybe at prom um, last night. I doubt it. Uh, but that, that that would be a little weird. <laughs> that, that would be a little weird. Uh, that's why I'm I'm fumbling around. <laughs>